So kids, head on over to uh, the kids' table. And while they're going, well, it didn't take long, uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now you may, out of the, the corner of your eye, or depending on where you're sitting, straight on, see some wiggling and hear some whispering, and that is okay. That's life in our church. Do I, do I need to read the, theme, the announcement that comes up every, uh, every morning? Actually, I will. Just, just to, to remind you, I love what Amy put out about the table about um, sitting at the kids' table at, at family events and that being uh, a way to learn to be a part of, uh, learn how to, how to do sitting at the table, but you're not outside. They, we don't put the kids in the other room. We don't stick them off somewhere. They're a part of, of who we are. They are a part of what we do. And, and just for fun, because y'all, after a while, you get to... Uh, tuning out the announcement slides, I am going to read this to you because this is what we want our church to be. Uh, the, the announcement slides, if you've never paid attention to it, says, to the parents of our young children, may we suggest, relax, God put the wiggle in children. Don't feel you have to suppress it in God's house. All are welcome. Feel free to sit toward the front where it is easier for your little ones to see and hear what's going on they tire of seeing the backs of others' heads. Quietly explain the parts of the service and actions of the pastor, ushers, praise team, choir, etc. Sing the songs, pray, and be an active part of the service. Children learn by watching. If you must leave the service with your child, feel free to do so, but please come back. As Jesus said, let the, little children, let the children come to me. The sound of a child is the sound of a living church. Remember the way we welcome children in church directly affects the way they respond to the church, to God, and to one another. Let them know that they are at home in this house of worship. To the members of our church, the presence of children is a gift to the church, and they are a reminder that our congregation is growing. Please welcome our children and give a smile of encouragement to their parents. And, and, and even a smile of, it's okay. Your squeaky kid is loud. It's okay. The toys are loud or the whatever. Is, it's okay. So we're glad to, to start doing this and, and make this a, a part of our service, make the kids a part of our service. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22 is, uh, I'm sorry, verses, yeah, 18 through 22. That's right. I, I said it right. I just read it wrong. Uh, is where we will be this morning. Get out, third in that series, get out of your selfishness. Voltaire, no believer, said the best is the enemy of the good. The best is the enemy of the good. Uh, ancient philosophers like Aristotle, Confucius, and others, they, they held kind of a similar, uh, to a similar principle called the golden mean principle. It, it's the, the middle average is better than either extreme. Just, just be middling. Don't be the best. You don't want to be that extreme. Don't be the worst. You don't want to be that extreme. Just hit the sweet spot. Hit the middle on whatever you do because, as Voltaire said, 
the best is the enemy of the good. The problem with that statement is Jesus did not agree. Jesus didn't agree that the best is the enemy of, a, of the good. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to tell us just the opposite over and over and over. And in these, uh, what, five short verses, he's going to make clear that you've got to shoot for best way beyond just good. As a matter of fact, he's going to tell us in so many words to sacrifice the good for the great. Or another way to, to put it, another way that he's going to show us here in this passage what may be necessary, expected, standard, customary, or traditional is no longer important in the light of following Jesus. All those things that we think we need to do, all those ways that we think we need to act, or the, 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 the actions we need to take, those things pale when we are called to follow Jesus in discipleship. Jesus is the standard, not Midland, not what's easy, not, not avoiding the extremes of being too good or too bad, but Jesus is our standard. And, and any attempt to follow Jesus, and that's the message of this passage today, any attempt to follow Jesus without full commitment is futile, and it is half-hearted, and it is selfishness. And those things will not survive when the path of discipleship gets narrow and difficult. So we have got to not try to be good, but great in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus. Matthew 8, 18 through 22 tells us that. Read with me uh, in your word, follow along on the screen. Is it cutting out? Okay, I thought I was hearing that too. Let me make sure I'm plugged in good here. All right, we'll see if that holds. And if not, y'all, nope, I heard it just cut out. My battery good? Okay. Yeah, my battery's good, but all right. I've turned that off, so it won't, it won't mess with me. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. I bet it's not plugged in up here. I'll worry about it next week. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In these passages, we have Jesus 
calling people to discipleship and their response to that call, what they are going to, how they're going to respond, what they're going to do with the call. Verse 18 is the call to discipleship. Now, we read it, and if we just skim over it, we, we, we kind of miss his point. We, we, we see that, oh, he just wants to go to the other side of the sea, the, uh, the other side of the lake. That's all he's doing. There, there's more here than that. They were leaving the comforts of home, what little home they had. Jesus' home was there in Capernaum. Uh, he stayed with uh, Peter and the mother-in-law. They, they, they stayed there in Capernaum. But now they are leaving the comforts of the familiar, and they're going across the sea into the area of the Decapolis, the, the ten uh, Hellenistic or Roman cities that were in that area. It was going to be a different uh, kind of ministry from here on out. It's not going to be a, uh, the North American mission board. It's not going to be the home mission board. It's, it's now foreign. It's international missions now that they are going to be a part of. And Jesus' statement that... Uh, the order, rather, to go to the other side of the sea, the sea functions as a call to discipleship as we read this narrative, though it, it's not immediately obvious as that. Jesus understands in this call, in this statement, in this command, we're going across the other, other side of the sea, he understands that there is going to be a chasm between the uncommitted crowd and the devoted disciples. This is a pruning. This is a trimming of uh, the, the, the bush a little bit. Uh, the, he's taken off the limbs that aren't intending to produce fruit. In, in rose bushes, I think I've used this analogy before, in rose bushes we call them suckers. It, you, you get the strong stem that has the big bud and it will have little bitty four, five, six sometimes, little buds around it. And you cut those off if you want the big full bloom. Now maybe you like the big poof of color of all the different buds, but if you do that, that one big bloom is not going to have the strength that it needs. It's got these suckers they are going to pull the nutrients out. So you cut off the suckers. That's basically what he's doing here. He understands this chasm, and this is shaving off some of the, well, to use his word a little bit later, his, the dead weight. It's not, not pretty, and, and it doesn't feel good, but we're going to see that's exactly what happens when they get up to cross the lake. When they get in the boat and they see who goes with them who either takes the boat across or walks around, travels around to be on that side. It's a call to discipleship. I just got louder, didn't I? Okay, all right. As uh, long as it's just not my ears. This is a do-or-die moment. This is, are you going to follow me or not? And we see two people who, as far as we know, didn't. We're not given any more information about these two guys. We don't know anything about them other than what this text says. But the, the feel of the text is similar to the rich young ruler who we will read about 
next week, I think, or maybe we read about him this week, I can't remember now, who was told, you know, I've done all those things, and he says, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and he went away sad because he was real rich. That's the, that's the tone, the tenor of this text as well. These two guys hear the call, are given the standard, and can't live up to the standard. The first one that we see is a call to physical sacrifice or physiological sacrifice or personal sacrifice. There are a lot of words I could have put in there, but we see it in verses 19 and 20. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is the physiological needs of the individual. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, I ain't got nothing to take care of you with. And you're not going to have anything to be taken care of with. Jesus, though, or rather the scribe, though, we see, uh, we talked about the crowd and um, the, the, the disciples, the, the, the core. The scribe calls him in this, in this instance, teacher, rabbi, he says. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, rabbi, not master or Lord. See, it was a, a sign of respect and acknowledgement, but it wasn't a sign of intimacy. It wasn't a sign of relationship, nor was it a sign of understanding at all who this guy was, this, this man that the scribe was wanting to follow. It shows us immediately that the scribe here is a part of the crowd and not a part of the core. So he's on the outskirts. He's, he's not in the middle. He's not as close as possible. He's, he's standing off to the back, kind of, and he says, Rabbi, you can almost hear him yelling it because he's got to talk over everybody else that's between him and Jesus. Rabbi, I'll go to the other side of the lake with you. I'll go over there. See, the guy is interested in this journey. He's like, what time is it? Okay, supper's at 6.30. Um, it's, I can be back. I've got... A haircut tomorrow, uh, got to pick up the cleaning. Yeah, I can make this trip. Yeah, Jesus, I'll go, I can do this with you. I'll, I can take this journey. Jesus doesn't want us for a journey. Jesus wants us for a lifetime of journeys. This guy's perfectly happy making the trip to the Decapolis Oh, I've never been to the Decapolis. I've never been to those cities. This will be a great little mission trip for me to go on. This will be a good opportunity for me to see other parts of the world, see other parts of the country that I don't get to a lot. And while there, Jesus will do some teaching. We'll, we'll build some houses. We'll, we'll fix some whatevers. We'll, we'll dig a well or two. You know, We'll do some work, but then I get to go back home and just pick up where I left off and continue with my life. Yeah, Jesus, I'll do this journey with you, but you can't have my life. I'll do this one thing, but nothing else. That's the tone. That is the, the intent as, we, as this passage, uh, as this response of the guy is presented. And Jesus, just to under, make him understand, 
I'm not talking about a journey. I'm not talking about a mission trip. I'm not talking about just going across the lake. Jesus says, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. It, 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 the guy would probably think, well, you know, it's a mission trip. We'll probably have to sleep outside a little bit, right? It's not a big deal. All right, it'll be, we're camping for Jesus. All right, we can do this for a week, for a day or two. But Jesus is talking about, I, got, I have nothing. I don't have a, a home life. I don't have uh, the, these, these certainties that you are going to want when this trip is over, when, when this time is done. So he, he actually contrasts this with the security that not humans have, non-humans, foxes and birds. Look, the, the wild animals that you see scurrying around here, they have it better in life than I do. They have more security in life than I do. And therefore, they have more security in life than you will if you follow me. It's kind of like he's the doctor given the worst case scenario up front. Uh, well, doctor, I got a splinter. Well, it could get infected and kill you. That's just, that's just what could happen. Um, can you just pull it out? Well, sure, we could. And, oh, I will, and it's done. It's no big deal. But it, here's the worst possible end. Well, for the life of the disciple, for the follower of Jesus, it is the guaranteed at least in this guy's mind, worst possible end. I'll follow you wherever. You've got no security in life if you follow me. Hmm, I like security. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a, uh, in, in communication and in, in sociology, uh, actually psychology rather, there's a guy in the 40s by the name of Abraham Maslow. And if you took any psychology, sociology, I took communication uh, courses in college. I, I didn't hear this in psychology. I heard it in communication. You've got, Abr uh, you've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid. And the, the widest at the bottom, narrowest at the top, in order to reach the pinnacle, you've got to start at the bottom, and you have to meet the five needs is how, how Maslow broke it down. And he starts at the bottom, it's the, the basic needs of life, the physiological needs, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, the basics of life. The next level up is safety needs, security needs. That's personal security, employment, resources, health, property. The next one up is love and belonging. The next one is, is esteem, and the fifth and final one is self-actualization. The first two, the bottom, you gotta reach the bottom one, you gotta have your physiological needs before you can be secure, before you can feel safe and secure. Well, in this case, Jesus is telling him, long before Maslow came along, hey, guess what? you're not going to get the bottom two levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're not going to be physiologically provided for, and you're not going to be safe and secure in life. That is a great pitch for a mission trip. I mean, it's like beginning of the mission trip. By the way, 100% you're going to die on this mission trip. 
Let's go, pay your money. We need a $100 deposit. But that's where Jesus begins. He, he begins with honesty because he knows this guy has in mind, I need my comfort. I need, as the, uh, I think of the, when we watch the nativity story at Christmas, I think of the wise man that says, I need my dates. You know, he, I need my dates. I need all the good things I'm used to eating, God, or, or rather in this case, Jesus. And Jesus says, no promises, except you ain't going to have them. Even the title that Jesus uses here, when he says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, is a deterrent of selfishness. It is Jesus saying, you know what? I, I don't have the things that I need either. See, he took a title from the book of Daniel that no one would have used for the Messiah, that Jesus used for himself, but just didn't come up. Nobody said, hey, you know, I want people to think I'm impressive and to like me and to follow me. What's a good title? Mmm, dirt. Oh, no, even better, son of dirt. That's basically the title. Just human, just flesh, just, just meh is this title. And Jesus takes it to deter this idea of selfishness. Because for one, nobody could grab on to this title and box Jesus in for their purposes. If he came saying all the time, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, he did, he, he said he was the Messiah, but if that was the title he used for himself all the time, then somebody was gonna latch onto that, which they did. They attempted to make him king at one point. Uh, Judas, one of his issues at least was he didn't like this whole path of no resistance. Jesus, we need to fight. They wanted to latch on to that title of Messiah and make him something he wasn't for themselves. And he said, no, you're not going to do that, so I'm going to take a title that's going to be a lot harder for you to grab onto and make me into your purposes, your needs. This, this idea of Son of Man had at least three reference, three uh, descriptors, three ways it described the one who held the title. First, it was talking about the future heavenly glory of the Son of Man. One day the Son of Man will come. That's what Daniel was looking at when he talked about it. But it also described, it also referred to the earthly suffering of the one who held the title. Yes, there will be heavenly glory, but there will also be earthly suffering as the Son of Man. And then finally, not only that uh, there's kind of the middle, heavenly glory, earthly suffering, but earthly status and authority. And at different points in his ministry, and then of course certainly at his resurrection, Jesus fulfilled, he, he met, he, he embodied all three of these, earthly status, authority, earthly suffering, and future heavenly glory. See, Daniel saw the heavenly glory, but the Son of Man must suffer on earth, simultaneously showing his status and authority while the people denied that he had it. 
He claimed something, and the folks said, no, you don't. That's not you. And he's like, yeah, it is. Oh, no, it's not. We're going to show you. We're going to put you on a cross. <laughs> okay, that, that's like a throw me in the briar patch. You're only fulfilling the plan. You're only showing who the Son of Man truly is. See, Jesus would not be boxed in, nor would he exhibit selfishness. He would endure the cross, despising or disregarding the shame. And that's what he's calling this scribe to do. Put aside your needs. Put aside the physical needs, the physiological needs, the, the security needs. Put aside those things you think you have to have in order to be fulfilled and come to the other side of the lake with me. The scribe had emotional enthusiasm, but he was unwilling to make the physical sacrifice. The heart was willing, but the flesh was weak, so to speak. The second person that speaks up, poor guys, they've been better off keeping their mouths shut. But they're good examples to us, right? The second person is a call to emotional sacrifice. The first one was the physical sacrifice. The second was the emotional sacrifice. Verse 21, Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This was a call to emotional sacrifice in verses 21 and 22. First, right off the bat, we see something different, don't we? He calls Jesus by a different name. Calls him something besides rabbi and teacher. There is intimacy here. He, he, he calls him Lord. So already we know he's got a different view of who Jesus is. He is further in, closer to Jesus. He's in the group. He's in the, uh, the core of the, the relationship with Jesus. And it tells us that it's somebody who is interested in more than just that day's journey, more, interested in more than just a mission trip. He is, he's, he's wanting to step out there and say, all right, got it. Physical needs, uh, security, not going to have it. I'm ready, Jesus, I'm ready. I, I, I don't know if it happened this way. I, I don't know that the guy heard, the second guy heard the first guy but almost, I kind of get that impression. Oh, yeah, he, I see what he did. He did it wrong, and Jesus rebuked it. <laughs> I'm going to do it right. Maybe, maybe I'm putting some, some bad motives on him, but it kind of it sounds a little like, well, like James and John did when they wanted to be, uh, you know, Jesus, when, when you come to your glory, Mama wants us to sit next to you. Is that all right? Can we do, you know, it, it's that sort of conversation we're having here. He's interested, but why is he interested? And he says, I've got to go bury my father. First, let me go bury my father. I'll take this long trip with you, but let me do that. He, he's possibly the eldest son in the family, and the responsibility for burying his father would fall on him. The burial arrangements would fall on him. 
Uh, normally in, in this era, they would uh, want to bury the dead within a day or two, so he's, he's probably only asking for about 24 hours. Y'all go on to the other side. Let me run home, take care of this. I'll meet you over there. Now, if that's the case, it's odd that he's not at home already. Your daddy just died, and you're out here listening to the teacher teach at the side of the lake. It could have just been a strong commitment to the teacher. Maybe, maybe that's what he was, it was. Maybe he had just gotten word that his father had died. We don't know. It's also possible, though, and I'm not declaring which is which on this. It's just two different ways to look at this. The, the end result is the same. It's possible that he is requesting not to go home and arrange a funeral, not that his father is already dead, but that he's asking to remain with his father, remain with his family, his father still living, maybe even still healthy, to fulfill his obligations to the family legacy. The phrase, go bury my father, uh, some scholars have said was actually an idiom. It was a saying that didn't mean literally go bury somebody, but let me go home and fulfill my obligations to my family. You know, I love to go out tonight, but I got to go bury my father. Awkward. Did your dad die? No, it's just a saying. You know that. I, just, I got things to do. That, that's kind of the way that some scholars say it worked in the Middle East. We're putting our East, or rather our Western thoughts in, into this. So if we go with that sort of interpretation, the guy's really just trying to fulfill the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. That, that's what he's doing. He's, he is honoring his father and mother by fulfilling his commitment as the oldest son. Honorable. A good thing, thing, a thing that Jesus has confirmed the commandments. As a matter of fact, he got on to the, the Pharisees at one point because the way they would get out of doing the fifth commandment was to declare something sacred to God, some stuff. This is Corban. That's what the word means, sacred, set apart. Therefore, I can't use it to honor my father and mother because that's God's, which means they get to use it for a while themselves until they give it away. Regardless, does he want 24 hours or does he want months or years? It doesn't really matter. It's probably, I lean toward the 24 hours. I think it's just, it just fits the text better. But either way, whatever he's asking for, Jesus says, uh-uh. The guy's trying to follow the fifth commandment, and Jesus says being a disciple is more important than your family. Ugh. But Jesus, you gave me this family. God gave me this family. God told me that to honor my father and mother. God told me to protect my family. God told me to provide for my family. And you're telling me to follow you is more important than that family. Because, exactly as I prayed earlier, God gave you that family. You do not love your family more than God does. 
You do not want what's best for your family more than God does. You do not care about your family more than God does. So if God says, give me that, but you might take it from me. You might not let me keep it. You might do something with it that I wouldn't have done. And God says, and who am I and who are you? It's mine anyway, right? That's what he's saying. Jesus here is, 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 is gruff. I mean, there, there's really no other way to put it. He tells him, let the dead bury their own dead. He refers to anybody outside of the discipling relationship. Basically, he tells this guy, you're a disciple. That's what the scripture says. He was one of the disciples. Doesn't mean he was one of the 12, just one of the closer in crowd. And he, he tells him, you're not dead, you're here. But they aren't with me. They aren't following me. They are dead. Again, it's, it's harsh. It's rough. But if we think about our, our situations in life, those who have already passed on before us, they are no longer, there's no way to say this nicely, so I hope you hear my heart and not the words, they're no longer a burden or a responsibility. We can no longer say, well, I can't do this because of person. Person's gone. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let the dead bury the, the, the dead, their own dead. You are letting people who are not where you are, are not part of the discipleship group, are not mine, control you and leading you to be disobedient to my calling. Let the dead bury their own dead. But God, they're my family. And God says, but they're mine. Now what Jesus has just done, going back to Maslow for a second and his hierarchy of needs, He's taken away the next two levels. So the first level was physiological, physical. The next level was security. The next level was relationships, love and belonging on that level. And then the next level, the fourth level, was esteem, respect, self-esteem, status, recognition. Well, if you're the guy who threw away your family, that's how it's going to be phrased, that's how people are going to talk about you, threw away your family for Jesus, I just made my notes disappear and I don't know how, then you're going to lose any esteem you might have had. So now you have lost your relationships, you've lost your family, level three, and you've lost the esteem in the community. You're the one that gave up your family to follow this teacher, this new religion, this thing. Jesus has just blown Maslow's hierarchy of needs out of the water. 
Jesus calls us to put away selfishness. And that's the lesson this morning. It's, it's okay, all right, I, I, can, I can see the first one being selfish. I'll take a short trip, I don't want to give you my life. That's selfish. Though we would say people who want a home, want food, want security, we wouldn't say they were selfish. Jesus says, no, you're thinking of yourself before you're thinking of me. That's selfish. We would be harder put. Hard putter. No, I think harder put. We would be harder put to say you're selfish if you want to take care of your family. And yet that is what Jesus is saying here. And he is calling us to put that away. Do you have emotional enthusiasm is the question for us today. Are you like the first guy? Yeah, oh, this is great. This will be a fun trip. This will be a great trip. I'm so excited to do this. Great. But Jesus calls us to tremendous personal and physical sacrifice, not just to emotional enthusiasm. The emotional enthusiasm will wear off quickly. First time you get kicked in the teeth. First time you get bed bugs. First time you get head lice. First time something like this happens because you're in the middle of nowhere on the mission trip. The first time you get up in the morning to take your shower in Honduras, and a shower is a bucket from well water, and it's 72 degrees outside, and that water is 71 degrees. Yes. That's experience talking. I ain't saying it for a friend. And you pour that bucket over your head and you squeal like a seven-year-old girl. You realize this isn't fun anymore. This is not yay. No. Now imagine a lifetime of pouring that bucket of water over your head. You think you get used to it, but you don't by the end of the week. I can tell you that. But maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're, 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 you're ready for personal sacrifice. All right, we can, we can move on from the first guy. That's not me. I'm ready to sacrifice my stuff. I can give up my stuff. Are you ready for that personal sacrifice? Great. Jesus calls us to tremendous emotional and relational sacrifice. I can do without the first two levels of Maslow. And then Jesus says, now we're going to throw out the next two. No physical needs, no security, no love and comfort, and no esteem, no recognition for anything you've done, no selfies with homeless people. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Connect group. We talked about that, you know, making, putting our work out there. Jesus calls us to set aside all of this, including our family, set aside all selfishness and anything that would prevent you from following him fully. It is all open-handed. Those were prayers that I prayed every birth of a child was, God, this is your child, not mine. Etta is his, not mine. He gives them to me for a while, hopefully for a super long while, but they are his, not mine. To do with as he pleases, 
not me. And I take it back every day, by the way. I'm not setting myself up as some uh, paragon of virtue when it comes to doing this. No, it's, it's a daily fight that they are his and not mine. We're all sinners, right? We will all fail to do this. We will all fail to put him first. And I'm not talking about the occasional thing. I'm talking about if you are willingly holding back an area or areas of your life, you need to question if you are truly his disciple. God, I will give you everything, but you can never have my family. You're not his disciple. God, I give you everything, and tomorrow, ugh, sorry God, I took back my family again. That's repentance. That's admission of guilt. That is recognition of your sinfulness. But if from day one you have determined, y'all, it has happened that grandparents sue their children for custody of the grandchildren when the children commit to the mission field. Those grandparents did not give their kids and grandkids to God. They know better, is what the grandparents are saying. It has happened. And in our court systems, I believe they have occasionally won for that very cause. That's a problem. That is willingly holding back an area of your life. If you are his today, if you are Jesus's today, then I'm guessing at some point in your life you have an area of selfishness. You need to repent of that and say, Lord, I know this is an area that I keep taking back from you. I give that to you today so that I can be a fully following disciple. Y'all, if you give it to him, it doesn't mean he's going to take it from you forever. God, if I give you my family, you might kill them. Really, that's the God you serve? That he's going to, ha, 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 got him now. That's not him. That's not how he works. Will you lose your family at some point? Well, as a kid, yeah, you are. I mean, you're going to. It's just the cycle of life. But if we have given him our families, our possessions, our everything from the get-go, then we can trust him if he so chooses to allow us to lose those things. If you are his, repent of your selfishness today. If you aren't his, well, you've, you've got a different kind of selfishness. You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You need to repent of that. You have said, Lord, my life is mine, and I'm not going to give it to you at all. Maybe you've just misunderstood salvation, and then you're sitting here today going, oh, this kind of stinks. You want me to give my life to Jesus, and he wants everything? Yeah. If I could use a bad analogy, I will, and I do, so I'm going to. If you knew that if you invested a little of your money now, you could have a little more later, or if you invested all of your money now and experienced some hardship right now, but you had a lot more later, and we could guarantee 
When the time comes, you're going to have everything you wanted. You just have to wait a little while. Most of us, I hope, we would go, okay, guarantees, right, in writing, I'm going to get it someday. All right, take it all. We'd, we would do that, probably, hopefully. Bad analogy, that's, like I said. That's what Jesus says. If you will give me the little now, or rather give me the all of it now, you'll get it all back and more. As a matter of fact, a parallel of this passage later on, the disciples say, Lord, we've left everything for you. We've done exactly what you said. And he tells them, you're going to get it all back and more. Trust me. One day you will get it all back and more. But we've got to take that step. We have to give him everything. And that begins with giving Jesus our hearts, repenting of our selfishness, our sin. See, if you are his, your selfishness is a detrimental hindrance to your eternity. It, it's not the end of your eternity, but it is a problem between now and getting there. It's, a, a, it's damaging to your relationship. But if you aren't Jesus's, if you've never trusted him as Savior, your selfishness is eternally fatal. And that's what we need to understand. And you can, exp you can fix that selfishness by knowing how you can be saved, understanding that you have sinned and everybody sins. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. But in Christ, through his gift, eternal life, we can have, or rather, through, his gift, through God's gift of Jesus, we can have eternal life. God proves his love for us in that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you very much, so much so he sent his son. And then says, call on me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the beginning of handing over your selfishness. And that's what you need to do today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and your, you speaking to us today. We pray that we would, as believers, give over our selfishness to you. Because, Lord, even those hard things to give over, it is still selfishness. It is still us saying, we know better. And, God, we can never know better than you. Lord, we pray that we would give it all to you. God, I pray for the, the unbeliever, the lost person who, who has never experienced salvation at all and is struggling with the idea of giving you everything. Lord, I, I pray that they hear your call today, hear your promise to never leave them nor forsake them, that there is no better safety deposit box for our entire lives, everything we love, everyone we love, than your hands. God, I pray that is what we see this morning in ourselves as we examine our own hearts. We see our need as believers to release some selfishness. We see as unbelievers to trust Jesus as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. I didn't talk much about Maslow's final level, the top of the pyramid. It's, it's the pinnacle of achievement. I did say it requires the other four to get there, but it is self-actualization. I mentioned it earlier, 
but I didn't spend any time on it. It's the desire to become the most that one can be. And if we just stop there, it sounds a little like selfishness. I'm going to be the most that I can be. Me, me, me. But Maslow was wrong. You don't need the other four to reach the top one. The top one, your fullness, everything you can be, self-actualization is realized in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you get to the pinnacle. That's how you reach your full potential and fulfillment. Jesus knew that, and that's what he calls you to today. We're going to have a time of singing, of commitment, of response, and I pray that you would respond in faith. Let's stand and sing to him this morning. Commit our lives to him. Listen to him as he pulls out our selfishness and quit arguing with him about it. Let him do business in our hearts today.